Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. Uh, welcome, everyone. I want to remind you that sometimes the discussions we have on our podcast can be tough to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So again, we encourage all of you to care for your safety and your well-being. Please reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll give you that address at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much, Claire. And we are so pleased to have with us today, Michael Unbroken. Michael is an incredible author, a coach, a mentor, an educator, and a survivor himself. He has such a lot to share of his life's journey and his talent. So Michael, can you tell our audience, our listeners, a little bit more about you? Yeah. So as you said, I'm a author, speaker, coach. Um, you know, a, a lot of that stuff has come just through, I think, the call it the serendipity of the universe or whatever it is that leads us down the path that we go. Um, but ultimately, my mission and my goal is to help other people who have survived massive and severe childhood trauma be able to do the hardest thing that we do in our lives. And that's learn to love ourselves and ultimately become the hero of our own story. Mm, that's beautifully said, Michael. And I think our listeners will love hearing how to unpack um, their own baggage, if you will, and s- thrive and survive. So um, maybe we could start a little bit with your incredible background. You know, what is the reason for you coming to this mic um, when you were a younger person? Yeah, you know, I think that for, I think a lot of people, especially in the personal development and mental health space, it's taking our stories, turning our trauma into triumph. And that's very much what it was and has been for me. Um, the, the elevator pitch version of the story is, you know, at four years old, my mother, who was a drug addict and alcoholic, actually cut off my right index finger. Right. So that's baseline. That's where we start. She married my stepfather when I was six. He was super abusive, kind of guy you praise never your stepfather. I mean, he'd kick the crap out of my brothers and I put me in the hospital multiple times. And, you know, hurt people hurt people. And that's the thing that I always try to remember in this now being very removed from that moment. I spent most of my childhood homeless and deeply in poverty. In fact, between eight to 12 years old, I lived with over 30 different families, right? Getting bounced around place to place to place. And by the time I was 12, I was breaking the houses, stealing cars, running from the cops, doing drugs. By 13, I was drinking. And at 15, I got expelled from school. And I was just trying to figure out life as many people are. And, you know, the luckiest thing that could happen happened to me. And I got put into a last chance program. Um, inevitably, I still did not graduate high school. I found myself suffering through many learning disabilities, through the deaths and murders of many of my friends, um, being deeply impoverished. And by the time that I was 25, I just kind of hit this massive rock bottom where I was 350 pounds, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, drinking myself to sleep. And I just kind of hit the wall. You know, Uh, Michael, before you go beyond that kind of low point in your life, um, I think, you know, you just said a lot to our listeners, a lot to me listening to you. And I wanted to just spend a little more time on that part of your life, because I think clearly it has, you know, been part of your transformation that has compelled you to where you are now to go to this place. But in that earlier stage where you were just 
you know, not, I wouldn't even say just a lost soul. You were a hurt and, you know, hurting and probably living in fear and found very little comfort. But when you ended up talking about cigarettes and weight gain, you know, I, I, I think we talked to lots of survivors and I think when we're very hurt, we have to find comfort somewhere. And perhaps what I'm hearing from you is, you know, there weren't many places to find or ways to find comfort, but you took, you know, the avenues that you found accessible. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that that's very common, right? We we move towards the things that help us just navigate the pain and the chaos of life. And, and so even at 12 years old, which people hear that and they go, that's unbelievable. I'm like a lot of my friends who were 12 years old, who grew up where I grew up, we were doing drugs together, you know, and, and we come from similar backgrounds, similar experiences. And I, I think it's, it's not as simple as escapism, right? It's salvation in some odd way. And, and I think that, you know, also you witness it in your home. Right. My mom being a drug addict, my stepdad being alcoholic, my grandma being alcoholic, my uncle being an alcoholic and a drug addict. Like it's everywhere all the time. May I ask something about that part of your life too? When when everyone around you is also hurting themselves, was there anyone outside of you who saw what was going on inside with you? You know, like I, I kind of have two questions. One is when all of this is going on in your life, were there any other humans, you know, through faith groups or school, you know, you said you ended up living with so many different families. Did any of them have any idea of the depth and breadth of what you were experiencing? Not until I was older. And luckily I had a couple of teachers when I was around 17, 18 years old, who kind of had a better idea of what was going on. But look, I mean, you got to understand this was the 80s and the early 90s, and it was not uncommon for these things to happen. And and I think the thing that I, you know, we, we grew up in a house where it was a don't ask, don't tell policy, right? Where we don't ever share those truths. We don't ever talk about those things. And I learned at a very, very young age, probably around third grade, like if I tell people what's happening, the suffering is even worse. And and so you learn to turn that off. And so I never told anyone. And when I was in these all these different homes, there, there's two really incredible things that happened in that span. One is I got to see that everyone else's house wasn't actually like my house. And that was discombobulating to some extent because I was like, oh, this is weird. I didn't know that kids weren't getting beat up every day. And then the other part of it was I learned how to be able to read people really well. And so though that became a tool that would serve me well in my life. And you look at resiliency studies around trauma and you find that if you did have that one person, it's very likely that you're going to have a far better outcome than children who grew up in similar environments that don't. And to some extent, I had that when my grandmother adopted me at 12 years old. However, I'm biracial, black and white, and my grandma's an old racist white lady from a town in Tennessee you never heard of. Right. So now you add this level of it 
and it's like the one person who's supposed to take care of you you can't really trust because she's yelling racial epitaphs out the car window on the car, you know so it's all it's all this like super level of chaos and in high school luckily i had a couple of teachers as i mentioned who when you grow up the way that i grew up and you have teachers in this kind of environment and that school has now been my high school's now been closed and defunded they've seen it all you know there there's nothing that i'm bringing to the table that in 30 years of teaching they haven't seen and one of them told me something real important one day they were just like you're not supposed to be here so you need to figure out how to get out and and that just that one sentence was a lot but i you know i played sports and I had great friends. I mean, even though we were doing highly illegal things, like I didn't know better, right? So while I didn't get what people see as like this Annie movie type savior, you know, there were always these little nuanced moments that I think really helped. That I think that's so insightful, Michael. And, you know, I, I'm curious about, you know, talking about your survivorship in, you know, myriad dimensions. A lot of our guests talk, you know, sometimes really explicitly about the types of abuse they experienced. And I don't know if you want to share any part of that, you know, of your history with our listeners. But, you know, the, a lot of them are searching for ways like how do how how does my path compare to Michael's? Is it similar? Is there something I can learn? Is there something unique about him is it you know it helps make you accessible to more people if whatever you want to share in that realm yeah definitely um you know i think a very simplified way to phrase it would be um if you're familiar with the ace score adverse childhood experiences survey and and study i'm a 10 right and and it's Right. And so it's something like less than 3% of all people who take that even get that high. And the Adverse Childhood Experience Survey is this questionnaire about the series of events that may or may not have occurred in your childhood that could lead to long term detrimental health ramifications. Right. And so I, I mean, I suffered abuse in ways that people cannot even understand. Like it doesn't register in their brains. And so I'm always kind of cognizant because of what you said. People often, while they are looking for that light and that inspiration, I think by human nature, we can unfortunately get into that space of being comparative. And, and so I'll, I'll preface what I'm going to say with like, don't compare your story with mine because I don't even know anybody who had a crazy story like mine. Right. So starting with, you know, my mom cutting my finger off, like I've had five surgeries, this thing's discolored, I can't feel it, I'm missing half of it, right? I mean, that's baseline. And I always start these conversations with that because people always introduce me as award-winning speaker, best-selling author, top podcast host, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, wait a second, that's not where it started. And, you know, going through that level of abuse, being homeless, you know, having a stepfather who, you know, six foot three, 250 pounds would beat up little kids, right? Wetting the bed, going through the trauma of being bullied, our, our power, our water, our heat would get turned off all the time, right? So we were the most impoverished school in arguably the most, or excuse me, the most impoverished family and arguably the most impoverished neighborhood in Indianapolis growing up. So it was like if I wasn't getting it at home, I was getting it at school and there was never any real safety. And so I was always in this hyper vigilant space, always in fight or flight, always trying to just simply survive. 
I mean, there were multiple times where in childhood I was just literally by myself for weeks at a time. My mom would disappear. My stepdad was over the road trucker. And at one point, you know, my my grandma had come to find out, hey, we haven't heard from you guys in a couple of weeks. What's going on? And I'd been living in the house by myself with no running water, no electricity. And so I'm stilling food to survive. Like I'm literally going to the big lots on the corner of 30th and Georgetown and hiding food underneath my shirt and walking out with it. Right. So. You know, nobody's story is the same. And I mean, I could get into the things like the beatings and the all the punishment things we had to deal with and stuff like that. But I think the one thing I want people to really understand is like nobody's story is the same. And and you have to look for light and inspiration and the people have been able to create the change, but also understand like some people just aren't able to do that. And we've got to come together to be able to ask the right questions and make sure that as we go through this journey, that we're in a parallel with each other, having a human experience. And even though I'm a step ahead of where most folks are, like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to figure it out like everybody. What I'm feeling is that here is this child who has experienced unbelievable trauma. And I, I'm, I can't imagine the um the rage and anger that that child felt it, i mean is that something that you struggled with and if you look out at the world and you said you didn't you know know and it was like you saw other friends whose families were not like this it was like oh this is a revelation that when you when you discovered that what you were experiencing wasn't typical what how did you feel when you realized that what what did you think Oh, I mean, I had massive issues with anger as a kid, but I I'd actually wouldn't even use the word anger. I would use violence, right? And so even as a kid, I was hyper-violent because, of course, I'm just doing what I'm seeing. I'm following suit with what I'm being embedded with. And so as a kid, I mean, I was in fights all the time. I was constantly getting suspended. I mean, I've probably broken my hands on people's faces four or five times, right? And and that was just par for the course in the way that I grew up, not to mention being influenced by a volatile and violent culture. And so the the way that I kind of processed things were I had, especially when I was young, right? Where I had two levels, either completely turned off and robotic or massively angry and violent. And, and I think that holds true for a lot of people who suffer trauma because we become dissociated. We become removed from our reality and we're just trying to figure out what it is, not recognizing that our emotions are taking control of us. And it took me a lot of work to be able to get through that. A lot of therapy, a lot of coaching, um, a lot of really getting in deep and understanding my emotional capacity. You know, what one of the really unfortunate aspects of my childhood particularly is being beaten to the point of physically not being able to cry with that being also reinforced with statements like, if you don't stop crying, I'll hit you harder, right? And so I actually thought I was a sociopath 
right? And and that's because it had literally been programmed and beaten into me that being emotional was not okay. So the only emotion that I did know was violence. And it took a lot of effort to be able to now feel, understand, and, and exist in that full range of emotions. And it's a challenge, right? I, I think arguably, and I've said this before, the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in this healing journey was learn how to cry again and to be okay with that and not to feel shame and guilt. And and I think that holds true for many, many people. Uh, Michael, as you're speaking about emotions, I love talking a little bit about, you know, you use a he pronoun and you know, we recognize everyone is different in terms of their gender and their concept of their identity around gender. But one thing as I'm hearing you and thinking about all the people with whom we've spoken, you're talking about anger and learning how to cry. And I kind of wonder what your thoughts are about, is that something you think might be part of your you know, expectation around what it is to be a man or what you thought other people expected. Or I think it's interesting to hear a man say, I wanted to learn how to cry because a lot of men say real men don't cry, right? (laughs) So, you know, what are your thoughts around that topic? Yeah, I mean, and totally, you know, again, just reiterating growing up in that time window of it's, it was very common, right? I grew up, in a time when you played sports where the locker room was very different than it is now. I grew up in a time where what we consumed in the television, the media was very different. And so not only do I have that, that violent interpretation of manhood at home, but it's also getting consumed through all the content that I'm consuming through my friends, through playing sports. And And that even carried on into my 20s where I'd realized after living with my best friend for like eight years, we had only ever hugged three times. And two of those times were at a funeral, right? And and I made a concerted effort knowing that there was this blockage, like feeling like, okay, hold on a second. You can't be an emotional recluse. Like how many different relationships are you going to be in where your partner is telling you, you don't have emotions and you are so narcissistic and so on and so forth, I kept thinking, how many times am I going to hear this before I change something? And so I actually made an effort to go and find a men's childhood trauma group therapy program. And in doing that, that really changed the way that I think about being an emotional man. Right. And even I think in this society we still live in, there's a lot of stigma around this. And so, you know, I, made a decision to go deeper into it, to learn more, to understand the emotional impact. And and I think what happened was I started to really get causation and correlation fine-tuned in my life, meaning I was able to start create rhyme and reason behind my behavioral patterns and why I was the way I was. And once I was able to have that and identify it, it gave me the fuel and the ability to change it. And and I think that's one of the really important aspects of my journey was I had identified this concept, not necessarily specifically crying, right? But I identified this idea and understanding of myself that I had no emotions and I knew I wasn't a sociopath, right? Um, But I knew something was off. 
And so as I started to learn about the ramifications of childhood trauma and abuse and the way that it impacts you emotionally and I started to shift and it took me a very long time to even get comfortable having conversations like this. Now I've been doing it for a while, of course, but it was really, I think one of the things that we have to understand is that the brain is incredibly malleable and plastic and we have the ability to grow and heal and change as long as we have clarity about where we're going. And so I made a decision. I want to be an emotional, in-tune man. And if you want to judge me for doing that, and especially if you're another man, like I literally don't give a shit, right? You're, I cannot let that influence me because I know who I want to be. And I, I think if more people would really hold on to that, we would have a vastly different society. I, I like what you're saying, Mike. On, I'm curious about this. You know, you set a vision, you commit to it, but I'm wondering if you could break down some of the ways in which you um, were, held yourself accountable and set micro steps in that direction. You know, what was what were some of the things that helped you stay on track and how did you do it on a daily basis? Well, I think the most important thing is the context around why I made that decision, right? So at, at 26, I effectively hit this massive rock bottom. And this is going back to the part when you said you were smoking two packs and 350, right? Totally, 100%. So I'm in that world. I'm drinking all the time. I'm working for a Fortune 10 company, right? And so I somehow figured out how to navigate corporate America despite not having any education. And I was doing excessively well. And I was just burying myself in all the things that were taking away from me. And, and after this rock bottom moment, I'm laying in bed, just looking at my life and I'm like, what the hell are you doing, man? Like, what is happening right here? You are living into the expectation that everyone said you were going to be. You're never going to be good enough. You're always going to be a loser. You're fat. You're ugly. You're stupid. You can't accomplish. So I'm like living into that reality. And in this moment, for whatever reason, I, I picked myself up off that bed that morning and I went and I looked at myself in the bathroom mirror and I remember being eight years old and the water company had come and turned our water off again. And for whatever reason on this particular day, I went to the backyard, I got this little blue bucket, walked across the street to our neighbor's house and for the first time I stole water. And like, as I was standing there, I remembered saying like, when I'm a grown up, this is not going to be my life. And so here I am 26 and it's not my life in a lot of ways. Right. But I'm still that hurt, lost little boy. And I looked at myself in the mirror, having this memory. And I asked myself, what are you going to do to have the life that you want to have? And the answer became no excuses, just results. And that actually became the marker for everything that I did for the last 12, now almost 13 years. And I think one of the things that I came to terms with that is incredibly uncomfortable until you do it is that I was playing a victim. Now, let's be clear. I'm not culpable for those bad things that happened to me right? No one is. We are not culpable for the things where people who were supposed to take care of us didn't, who are supposed to love us and, and rear us into the world didn't show up. That's not on me. Most of us think it is though. And I did. And so I always blamed everyone for the things I was doing. 
I always said the most dangerous sentence in the English language, which is, this is just how I am. And realizing that when I was stuck in that, that's massive victimhood. I'm the way I am, so I can't have a good relationship. I'm the way I am, so I cannot have financial security. I'm the way I am, so I can't love or take care of my body. It's dangerous, right? And so in making that declaration about no excuses, it was, okay, I have a kind of an idea about what I need to do to change my life therapy, not smoking, eating better, working out, not cheating on my girlfriend all the time, you know, stuff like that. And and it was about executing against those ideals and saying to myself, take action. Now, what's really interesting is I look at my life today and I make up my mind and I do something and it takes, it's done, right? But from 26 to 30, I would actually argue were the most difficult years of my life because it was like I would take one step forward and I would take a thousand freaking steps backwards because I was learning for the first time. I'd never taken care of myself. I'd never been compassionate or had grace or given myself empathy. I'd never also pushed myself into being different and showing up and living life on my terms. And so it was really, I sat down and I started just creating this idea of the life that I wanted. I started writing things things down. And then I started pushing myself towards those things. One of the things that I think is incredibly important for people is to take action, right? And take action that is driving you towards what it is that you want to be, not waiting to have it all figured out. And that's what I used to do. I'd sit down, I'd put together a freaking spreadsheet with the pros and cons of everything. And I realized I was just always staying stuck. And I needed momentum. And so I just started challenging myself to do difficult and uncomfortable things like going to therapy, not getting drunk every Friday night, saying no to hooking up with strangers from the internet, like the whole thing. And for years and years and years and years, it was this process of try, fail, repeat, try, fail, repeat, try, fail, repeat, because I understood something about myself that I, I learned the hard way. Um, <laughs> I'm the same kid where at six years old, I put a fork on the electrical socket because I wanted to see what happened. And so it's not enough for somebody to tell me I have to go figure it out. And, and in the failures that I had, I just simply looked at them as lessons. And I thought to myself, cool, I know how not to accomplish my goals now. So let me try something different. And, and I think building self-accountability and honoring who you are, knowing that there's a differentiation that must be made. A lot of people look at doing things that change their life as punishment and I have to always look at things that I do in life, even if they are incredibly difficult, as doing things that make my life better in spite and sometimes despite of myself and saying that I made a decision to go to therapy every single Monday and Wednesday for a year. So I'm going to do that. And I think that's the biggest key takeaway I hope people will will have is that it's not about the routines and habits of journal, meditation, blah, 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 blah. We all talk about that. We all know about that, and especially personal development. It's about self-accountability because you are building love, compassion, courage, hope, and joy in having a human experience that is removed from all the abuse that you went through.
Right. And I'm, I'm thinking of some specific people that I have in mind who may have had not the same experience as you, but had similar struggles. And, and even the questions you said, you know, you were wondering if you were a sociopath, you were wondering, you know, these sorts of questions. You, you lost a lot of friends growing up. And I'm specifically curious about that piece. Did you ever struggle with the idea, why am I here and shouldn't I just die, just like my friends, where for whatever reason they died, you know, that when a young person loses a lot of peers, a lot of people who are close to them, that in itself is a different kind of trauma. And I just wonder what meaning, if, if any, you've, you ascribe to that particular loss. Yeah, I think that's a great question. In childhood, I never thought that way, right? Um, I, I mean, I had my own struggles. At 14 years old, I downed a whole bottle of Advil, right? Being like, I'm done. Not realizing like, you're probably not going to die. You're just going to wake up throwing up all over the place, right? And, and maybe that was luck that that happened. But when when my friends, you know, at, I had a friend commit suicide when I was a freshman in high school. We sat at the same lunch table every day. I'd known this guy, Right. You fast forward, I, I can't even count all the losses. My my three childhood best friends have been murdered, two of them over drugs, one of them in his living room, and one of them got stabbed to death behind a dumpster, right? And and you look at that, and it's really, really, really easy to be like, man, I hate life. This is terrible. Why should I be here? And And I've had my own thoughts about suicide, and I've had my own plans, and I've tried it before. And I think the thing that when I was young, I always thought about was like, I'm supposed to do something. You know what I mean? Like, I just always kind of had this feeling there's something here I'm supposed to do. And as I've gotten older, that is just more and more solidified. And so I, I try to always remember that I have compassion and empathy for the people who take their lives or who are taken from us. Because like ultimately, and I know this is, you know, a dark thing to say, but none of us are getting out of this alive. You know, it's just unfortunate that we lose people in ways that we don't want to lose them. And, and I think that that's one of the things that I've had to sit with. I've faced a lot of death in my life. And, and I just try to sit in the reality of going, you know, I get it. I think that's super helpful, Claire. A great question and a great, a very helpful response, Michael. Um, I think my last question and thinking again through all of our listeners and the kinds of questions we get asked that you could perhaps speak to is I want to go back to your gender again. <laughs> um, I hate to go back to it, but I think it's so important um, because we are having a lot of male survivors come on the, the program and we want to embrace their, their journey. Um, and I, I know you spoke a lot about what that looked like to you. Um, you made reference also to, you know, the, the cheating on your girlfriend and the, that sexual part of, you know, wh what was hurting and what was also being hurt. <laughs> Um, would you care to talk a little bit about that part or is it disconnected to the rest of your journey or you think it was part, all part of it? You know, I guess, how do, how does your re relationship with women, um, look in light of what you've been through? 
Well, very, very, very different than the context in which we start, right? Um, I, you know, growing up, the the thing that I always felt in experiencing abuse from my mother, from my grandmother, and being molested as a child by by a woman, which is in the small minority of percentages of molestations that happen in this world, I I did not. I I basically became dissociated from this idea of love, respect, companionship with other human beings, not just women, right? But with other human beings. And so from even the youngest age, 16, 17 years old, I always chased this idea of satiation and companionship in love in in whatever that thing is through sex, thinking like that's the thing that shows people that I matter, right? Trying to fulfill this sense of self through others. And so that was my journey for a very, very long time. I mean, really until I was like 29 years old. And now as I head closer to 40 and I look at my life, it's incredibly different, right? I've, I've made a conscientious effort based on my values of honesty, kindness, leadership, and self-actualization to live life in terms and accordance with the person that I want to be tomorrow, not with the person I am today. And so I, I had to go through this process of recognizing even at some points, like I was dating women who were effectively my mother, right? Who were abusive, who were hurtful, who were like incredibly unkind. And so because I felt the pain from that, I was like, oh, I'll go find love and compassion somewhere else. And it was this massively vicious circle. I actually go deep into this in the next book that is going to come out because it's important. And I think that a lot of people go through this idea of thinking that like sex is the thing that makes us feel whole and loved when in fact it's really truly not. And nothing external is ever going to fill us up. And that's one of the greatest lessons that I learned in getting deep into this work is now it's no amount of sex, money, shoes, cars, clothes, admiration, podcasts that I'm on, blah, blah, blah. None of that shit is ever going to make me love myself. And the most important thing is that I go look in that mirror every single day and I'm okay with the reflection on the other side. But look, it takes work to get there. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, thinking of where you are now and how you've transformed your life. And that that kid who was just, you know, the world was nothing but a hostile place and, you know, how did he get here? And you mentioned that this this last chance program that kind of got you started. I'm just curious about that trajectory. Yeah, I mean that that was helpful because it helped me, you know, learn skills like writing resumes and cover letters and stuff like that, but I I I mean I'd be remiss to say that it was a major role player in this. The the thing that happened for me again coming back to that rock bottom and making that declaration in that space between almost 13 years ago and today has been a nonstop effort on a literal daily basis to continue to push myself forward in growth. And that has meant, I actually did, I'll, I'll give you something tangible from a data perspective. I sat down one day and I added up all of the time and money I have spent in therapy and personal development. And it's over a quarter of a million dollars and around 6,400 hours of work in the last 13 years. 
when I say no excuses, like I mean it. Like I was doing, I, I sold everything I owned to pay for a coach. I put myself in all of the rooms. In the beginning, it started with, I'm going to go to the library and check out all the books. I'm going to stop watching football. I'm going to stop playing video games. I'm going to get focused on learning. I'm going to educate myself, show up to therapy. It, in 2016 and 17, I went to therapy three times a week, a men's group therapy, a one-on-one therapy, and a trauma survivor's therapy every single week for years, right? Going to coaching, showing up to the gym at 5.30 a.m., not eating chocolate cake for dinner every day, which is my favorite type of dinner, by the way. Um, <laughs> and it was this thing about like, really, you have to do the work. You have to put in the effort, especially if you grow up with no real indication of what it means to have self-love. This is all about me first, right? And, and that's the thing that I always try to reiterate to people. Like, I share what I share in the hopes that it'll inspire people to know that no matter where we come from, you can change your life. I mean, I have clients as young as 18 and as old as 67 years old right now. And it's like, wherever you are, as long as you choose you, your life can be different. And so in choosing me, it was about show up every day, have the uncomfortable conversations, push myself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and just keep doing it again and again and again. You know, I think one of the things that has probably been the most empowering recognition for me is sitting in the reality that this is a rest of my life game that no matter what I'm always going to have to show up. I'm always going to have to continue to learn, to grow, to heal, to love, to do things like journal and meditation and conferences. I mean, even just this past weekend, I was at a personal development conference. I took one of my little brothers and we sat for a few days in this room and we learned and we grew. I still have to go to therapy. I still have to go to the gym. I have a health coach. I have a nutritionist. I'm always taking care of myself. And that's the thing. Right. But start where you are because I literally had to sell everything that I owned to begin this journey. Right. And I think that's the thing that I hope people will hear. That was hugely powerful, Michael. I love that you shared everything. And I think we end where you began, which is, you know, a commitment to turning our losses, our hurts, our broken selves, our abused selves, and making them the most brilliant, beautiful, strong, committed, helpful, caring, everything that you've done. But, you know, for the mathematicians and and objective thinkers, I also truly appreciate that you quantify the investment because I almost feel like some of us need to need that discipline to say, I am investing everything in me. (laughs) And in part, in turn, I'll say, I think you have now made so many returns on your investment, not just personally, but for so many others, which is a gift you are giving uh, being a guest on our podcast. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Claire, anything else? No, I not at all. Thank you. Except thank you. This has been an amazing uh, conversation. Um, And I so am glad that you joined us today.
Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Anything you want to share, a final comment to our, I think you've said so much, Michael, but I do want to just put out again, you're, you are coming out with a new book. So tell our listeners a little bit more about where they can learn more about you other than your own podcast. Yeah, yeah. We have Think Unbroken podcast, of course. Um, but we have a, a, a community that is off of Facebook and off of other social media platforms with hundreds and hundreds of trauma survivors and warriors in it. If you go to thinkunbrokenacademy.com, um, and that is the best place to come hang out with us. Fantastic. And if you are ever um, amenable to giving some speeches, the other of many hats I wear is going around the world to many schools, institutions, and, you know, sharing my own personal story, but also those I bring along with me um, are always, I think, an inspiration to the many audiences I am blessed to stand in front of and have a, a moment of their time. So, um, perhaps you'll join me on an excursion to a, a town, a city, a, a university, or elsewhere. So thank you again, Michael. And Claire, can you close us out? Absolutely. We are so grateful to Michael for joining us and also to all of you who are listening to this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. We, just as a reminder, if you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit TakeBackTheNight.org. We have a list of resources there. We have information on our legal support hotline. So please check that out. And also, you can help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. So please consider posting it on your own social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. So thank you to all of them. And thank you again, listeners, for being present today. And always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. Thank, thank you again. Um, and to all our listeners, we look forward to welcoming you again. Um, stay tuned for our next episode. Um, and please always visit our own resources uh, if you need further support or help. And uh, we look forward to continuing our healing journey together. Take care.